I have done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with all different types of healers who provide a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete that circle of artistic authenticity, which we all strive for. The cat's eye interview of making a living on the bandstand for the last, last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. For me nowadays, labels and names have really gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters want to pigeonhole and brand music. The cats have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off for years. They play little parts and serve the song as conduits for information from the heavens. For the most part, the cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way to become part of the musical conversation. Thankfully, when the record business was actually an industry, these artists had the opportunity to gain name recognition through their work as accompanists and leaders by weaving in and out of different musical settings. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from the musicians whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the opportunity to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than myself, who have experienced societal shifts, and have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. As a rogue journalist, I'm searching for that fine line of connection from mind to body to soul. That's where the spirit emerges and what my whole show is about. How to Create Spiritual Music. Bobby Bridger, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, it's a, uh, hearing that, it's a pleasure to be here. I sincerely mean that. <laughs> I dig. No, no, thank you, brother. I, um, I just want you to talk about that, man, whether in the studio or on the bandstand. You know, over time, when did it become clear to you how to create spiritual music? Well, I think I came at it from that perspective from the start. Uh, I, I grew up in what is kind of commonly referred to as the great folk music scare uh, of the early 60s, late 50s and early 60s. And uh, during that time, it was extremely authentic important to be authentic uh and to have some sort of ethic about what you were doing you know uh it was off folk music in those days was often called message music you know oh, huh. uh it, it was largely because of pete seeger and being blacklisted and all that and uh that came out of the communist fears of the post world second world war and uh anyway so i think that had a lot to do with a lot of people during the folk music in particular during the folk rock merger back in the mid 60s that dylan orchestrated uh had a spiritual impact what, what spiritual... i mean what what uh Specifically, can you talk about a message that resonated with you in your own 
your own message. I mean, everybody was bringing, it wasn't, it, it was more, I mean, clearly Seeger blacklisted, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the McCarthyism, all that stuff. But what was uh, a Bobby Bridger message that resonated with you early on in your, in your career? I felt like we had been felt a truckload of horse shit. <laughs> 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 which is which is probably true, you know. I wasn't around, uh, but yeah. As in the mythology was all skewed, and once I started digging into history, actual history, I saw how skewed it really was, and that sharpened my edge for wanting to tell a story about the uh, the false concept of manifest destiny and uh, look behind what that really was masking and that's what spawned uh, a spiritual thrust in my music I think but that didn't emerge until I had already had a a very successful uh, for me pop country career in nashville and that was that career was also uh touched by a spiritual motivation but it was much more of a uh artistic purity than it was of any kind of uh spiritual music with it was more like uh, secular hymns. Yes. Yeah, I did. I did. No, I, I, I just want to go back for a minute, though. Like, um, would you say that uh, – can you just go a little bit deeper on on authenticity? Did that mean writing original music? Did it mean specifically speaking out against uh, the whitewash version of history? Was it just about – being yourself and not even having to sound or not using any kind of, you know, you know, have your own tuning or what is authenticity to Bobby Bridger in that late fifties, early sixties time? Well, and I'll give you a perfect example of it. I think Uh, my second single for monument records in, in 19 late 1967, uh, my producer was Fred Carter Jr., of course, the guy that taught Robbie Robertson how to play guitar. Yeah, my, my, we're going to get into him. Real, I love that cat oh, so oh, much. Oh, man. Yeah, he's he's the real deal, man. Yeah, really, yeah man, I know. Really. Okay, anyway, I'm glad you know about Fred. I don't have to go into that. Um, anyway, he, I was picking songs, and he knew that I was so green that uh you know i had rube painted on my forehead you know (laughs) and uh we're all god's rubes man he went he he went the extra step and found a song that he felt summarized my how he saw me and it was a song that glenn campbell wrote called less of me and uh, it was it was almost like uh, the golden rule in a message song that, and it was just wonderful. I loved that song. I, as a matter of fact, I even redid it on a 2016 album called Vagabond Heart. 
but it's a great Glenn Campbell song, but it's it has that, let me be a little kinder, let me be a little blinder to the faults of others, let me praise a little more, let me be a little whatever. To uh, uh, I, I can't do that right off the cuff. I'll miss the rungs on the ladder and go crazy. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it was a, a great secular hymn, that song was. Huh. And it was supposed to be the, it was the A side of the single. The B side was a song called Morgan City, which is, was a song about a woman who was uh, cuckolding three different guys who were working on an offshore rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And that song was the hit. <laughs> that song came out of left field of the hit. Yeah, that's more so, what our society gets off on than the uh, yeah that be good to your brother kind of thing, you know. Yes, but yeah. that was it was in that same kind of period where uh, uh, come on, brother, uh, shine on your brother. Uh, right, right. Shit, uh, the young blood song and i can't think of the name of it right now i dig uh, you dig it i know it. uh anyway uh so that was part of that period and yet it was commercial at the same time in that period everybody was trying to get together that's the name of the song we were trying to think of i just want to uh, i want to i want to <clears throat> i just want to get something that's chronologically straight here you uh because it's cats like freddie carter that i you know, he's just one of the most unsung geniuses of all time. And amen, brother. You know, like I know when I interviewed Ronnie Hawkins, he took he took uh, Doc Pomus, I think Fred Carter Jr. up to uh, Toronto, uh, and that was the original <laughs> Hawks band. They got yeah. You know, they got they families. Uh, they got a little homesick, so they went back. And then, like later on, like Levon always had fred carter on his albums but when mm -hmm. did you when did you first did you go to nashville in the mid 60s i'm trying to figure out how you connected with fred well i'll i'll, I'll fill in the blanks i'll connect Please. the dots for you there yeah uh, and it, it i think will complete some of this your first question i didn't mean to be vague it's no no, no of, this is all consent these are all concentric circles so don't even sweat it you know i was when i went to college i the, the not i it was in the Right the, the time, right before John Kennedy was assassinated, in that two-month period before Kennedy was assassinated, the first thing I did was enter the freshman talent show, and I won it, uh, playing four strong wins or something like that, 500 miles or whatever was popular during the day. About three or four days later, I auditioned for a local television show. And in those days, everything was live on television. <laughs> Pardon me. Where was college, by the way? This was in Monroe, Louisiana. I, I was from a tiny little town called Columbia, 30 miles south of Monroe. And Fred was from a little town called Winsboro. So it was, it was called uh, Mon about Mon Monroe College? No, no, it was Northeast Louisiana State College. Oh, my College. God, that is so classic. Go ahead. Okay. Fred was from Winsboro, which is about 30, 30 miles east of Monroe. 
Now the Hawkins cousins, Dale and Ronnie, had they were from Arkansas, but they had cousins in Mangum and all over that part of the country and so oh, forth. And so, oh. so it was all intertwined, and everybody knew who Puddler Harris, all those people were in the music business. I wrote about this extensively in my autobiography because I wanted. I felt like no one had given these people credit that came out of, absolutely not. Absolutely. out of the Louisiana Hayride. Half of them created the, the, the wrecking crew in LA and the, and Fred introduced the Telecaster to Nashville and also was the finger picking genius that brought half those focus from New York to Nashville. Gee, are so, you kidding me, dude? Holy no. cow. You're okay. I don't want to go. So Northeast Louisiana, you get up, do a talent show. Continue. Okay. I, I do. I, I went a spot. I didn't even have a car. I rode my bike the two miles out <laughs> to the television station with yeah. my guitar on the handlebars of the damn thing. I won a spot uh, on the talent sh uh, on the show. It was a 15 minute live show. In those days, there were three television stations. Uh, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Everybody watched Walter Cronkite. Right. Uh, he, and, and I was on the CBS affiliate 15 minutes before Walter Cronkite came on. And so I was a regular on that show for two years while I was in art school studying painting and sculpture. Okay. So that may open up a little bit more about my spirituality right there. Anyway, Fred's mother, Fred was already, Fred, that was the point when Fred was leaving the band, the Hawks, working with Conway. You probably, you know his background. He was no, you know, I mean, this is, we, we might spend this entire first interview on this erogenous time in music. So yeah, you, I just want to be clear. I want to be just, the, the, the talent show was being televised and it was. Yeah, 15. no, 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 no. They've got the two mixed up. Those were two pivot points in my life, absolutely separate entities. I won the talent show, which let me know I could do something in folk music. I did. And then it gave me the confidence to go audition for this television show. And I, I won a spot. A rec I was a regular on the show every Wednesday and Friday for two years. Now, was it based out of New York or, or Nashville? No, it was this was all a local show out of Monroe, Louisiana. On on KNOE, Louisiana, uh, Jimmy No owned the station. Former yeah, but you, the point is that, that the point is yeah. that 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 show was broadcast to a national audience. No, no, it wasn't a national audience. It was all over Southern Arkansas, Western Mississippi, and Northeast Louisiana. And it was right fifteen. There. That was fifteen minutes before before, before the Walter Cronkite. Cronkite show. Got it. That Got it. was unbelievable. I had an audience in that region, the bedrock of North of North American music. That, dude, I'm telling you, I want you to. This is all I want. Okay, so. Okay, so Fred, I was Fred, on Fred that was, show. Fred was Fred was coming back down to where where was so Twitty? He was he yeah. was he was he was working with Conway and he was working with with Roy Orbison and he was already smelling the. Uh, paradise as a studio musician in nashville i did and he was in those days he was signed to monument 
as a triple threat, and Willie was a quirk. Willie Nelson was a quirky songwriter. Fred was Fred was a songwriter, singer, guitar picking genius. Had you no? I just want one more question. You had you met Fred prior to at no. Northeast Louisiana? You never met. No, him. I had. I had. I was still a serious mud pucky. Mud right. Puppy you you had, you had the rube on your on your forehead yeah i get it. no but i was uh, i was studying abstract expressionism and and sculpture and yeah, which ceramic. is totally hip but yeah i get it yeah. i was i was in uh, i was up to my uh elbows in mud on a potter's wheel most <laughs> of the day. okay but fred's fred's mother tilly was a fan of mine on the monroe television show the local television show before the CBS news. Oh my God. And she kept telling Fred that he needed to sign this kid from Northeast Louisiana and his neighbor in his backyard, my dad and Fred senior were bosom buddies, hunting buddies. And so Fred came home. I'd had a fight with my father about hunting. I didn't want to hunt. And my dad wanted me to be a hunter and I was patching up with my dad. And I went home for Thanksgiving uh, from college. And Fred was down from Nashville hunting deer with my dad at my dad's deer camp. And I came in off a stand, just uh, a deer stand, as they call them. And there was Fred and his dad and his brother, and they were stripping out a deer they had killed. And Fred called me over and said, my mother Tilly's telling me I'm, I need to get you to Nashville to make a record. And I, he said, do you want to come to Nashville and make a record? And I said, yeah. And I had already, I was already popular from the television show and I'd been offered a bunch of contracts and my dad would never let me sign them. I was underage. Wow. And, uh, I just want to make you, I want to tell you something. This is already the, I mean, this is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard in my 12 years doing this show. Oh, wow. So, so, well, so I just want to be clear. You did you know Fred C, Fred Carter's father, or they had hunting buddies, and you didn't even ever ask who, who they were. Yeah, I knew they were friends and so forth. I didn't know who they were, but I I just knew of that Fred was some big big wig in that. Right, right. And then you happen to come home patching things but up, and he's. I was into folk music. Nashville didn't interest me. I was totally into folk music. If it was if I was playing music. And I was already doing research into my epic ballads, my Western epic ballads. I was deep into history books. I, did. I was already, I could have what was, written what a, was your, a scholarly what, book on folk music at that time. What was your impressions of that early Nashville uh, country music? Why was it, did, were you really just not hip to it or did it really not appeal to I you? really was not hip to it at all. I was not hip to what was going on. Uh, Fred, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll continue the story. Go ahead. I went, I went straight back to college and didn't think twice about it. Uh, <laughs> I told, for, for several, for several days, I told everybody I'd met Fred Simon and Garfunkel's guitar player. And they all thought I was uh, pulling their leg and wouldn't pay any attention to it. And so I, and so I just forgot all about it and went back to the potter's wheel. And then in June, that was that was Thanksgiving. And in June, I got a call one Saturday morning from Fred. Uh, my dad called me into his office and said, Fred Jr.'s on the phone and wants to talk with you. And I got on the phone. And I, 
he said, I thought you wanted to make a record. And I said, oh, I do. I'd love to make a record on anything. <laughs> I thought you were joking. And he said, no, I'm as serious as a heart attack. I'm making so much money doing sessions. I'm worried about kidnappers. He said, <laughs> he said, I, I want to be very clear. He said he was a triple threat. He was a studio shark player. He could, yeah. he, but he was also an A&R guy. He was recruiting talent. He, he, had, he was the former head of A&R records in Nashville for, um, Monument. What was it? ABC ABC Paramount. Get out. Are you serious? He, he resigned because they would not sign Jesse Youngblood of, with that get together song. Oh, Jesse Colin he, Young. Jesse Colin Young. You need wow. to look that part of Fred's history up. I dude, he that was, is so bad. So he had a no matter what, he had a lot of pull in, in I'll he, fill you I can fill yeah. you in on a lot of lot of stuff as we go, go along ahead. in the story. Yeah. yeah. Uh uh but you, he, but, he, but he was like, he's like, I'm, I'm drowning in money. I thought you were serious. Where are you? Oh, he was joking about all of it. He I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Money, I'm kidding. He, oh, yeah, I did. He was, he, yeah, that was Fred's way of, you know, uh, there's so many, there's so many beaver we have. They're, they're bringing those traps and telling us to uh, pull them, put them on their feet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the mountain men would say. Oh, I love it. <laughs> anyway, uh, oh, I love it. Anyway, uh, uh. I went to uh, Nashville and we sat out on the back porch uh, of his house in Nashville. And he said, which direction do you think we ought to take pop or country or whatever? And I said, I don't, I honestly don't know, Fred, you're the producer, man, you know? And he said, I think we should try to go, country first but we'll get some uh, kind of different flavor you're more into folk music and I said well I have one thing I'd like to ask on the way up I had driven up I had driven through Tupelo to pay homage to Elvis right uh, because I was going to make my first record and uh, man I was a serious Elvis freak when I was a kid <laughs> teenager yeah, I did. So I, I spent the night in, in Tupelo, and then I was driving up through that part of Tennessee, that central south part, and I heard something come over the radio that I had to pull over on the side of the road. It sounded like, I wrote about this in my book too, it sounded like somebody had learned to play gossamer uh, spider webs. Mm. I, I just, I was enchanted. And I prayed for the announcer to say who it was. And he said, it was Gentle on My Mind by John Hartford. Not by Glenn Campbell, by John Hartford. Hartford. And it had and it cast a spell over me. And I, I spent the whole way driving to Nashville trying to find that song on the radio again, and I couldn't. And so this was two days later, and I, I said to Fred, I said, I heard the sound on the way up here. This guy's name is John Hartford. Yeah. I said, and Fred just paused, broken, interrupted me and said, with great reverence, said, gentle oh, on my mind. And his eyes rolled up as if to heaven. <laughs> and he wow. said, wow. 
I said, could you get him to play on my record? And he said, I know him. I'll call him. And two days later, John Hartford was playing on my first record. All right. I want to be clear. This is so my, so Hartford was camped out in Nashville. Hartford was where he was. He was recording in Nashville. He lived well, in Nashville. So, you know, what's so time. amazing is that, what was that, what year is it, 67? 67, this is okay. June, July of 1967. <laughs> what's incredible is that not only put you in a trance, but then it led to people like Gary Burton, the vibes player, to go mm-hmm. down to, and make, I mean, he made a jazz album, but there's no doubt that th- it was the same kind of thing. Um, that was really... Nashville was a hotbed of incredible activity. Gentle on my mind, John Hartford. Oh, and so, just, it, so, so Hartford comes in the studio. So then what did you actually, you, you, you took Fred's advice and were like, all right, let's go in a little bit more of a country direction. Well, yeah, we cut a song called, I don't have sense enough to come in out of the pain. Do you think that's country? <laughs> I mean, that's a that's the longest title I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Well, we had Lloyd Green on steel. Oh, we come had on, w- come Wayne on. Moss, Wayne oh. Moss on, on lead uh, acoustic, Hartford on dobro banjo, Willie Ackerman on drums and Junior Husky on bass wow. and Pig Hargis on, on piano. Ah, oh, Pig, are you kidding me, dude? Scotty, this is unreal. Al Pachuki was the engineer, Elvis's engineer, and we were in Studio B in Nashville. And Scotty Moore was Al Pachuki's uh, associate engineer on the date. And, and just to be clear, Scott Moore was playing up Scotty, Scotty that- Moore. No, Scotty- no, no. Scotty Moore, Elvis's guitar player, was Pachuki's associate engineer yeah, on the that's, date. That's right. That's right. Bill Black played upright. That is so. So yeah, Scotty. No, no. Junior <laughs> Husky played bass on my date. But Bill I know, Black no, I know, was, no, I know. But I yeah. want to be clear. Scotty Moore, yeah. Scotty Moore was also a musician as well. Yeah, and Fred was just the producer on this. He Can you talk? I, this is really important for younger cats. I want you to mm-hmm. talk. I don't. I want you to just. I. I know you had your own aesthetic. You were pretty avant-garde in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. Um, can you talk about the idea and the magic of if this in fact happened, where everybody gets in the studio at the same time and hits live? I have to believe that you uh, probably got one or two takes and you were done with each two. No. It. Uh, I was so awestruck by yes. Scotty Moore and Al Pachuki and John Hartford <laughs> that it took me 25 takes of I don't have sense enough to come in out of the pain to get a cut. On it. Uh, you know what? I appreciate you saying that, man. Uh, you know, I, I dig that. So that was that. <laughs> but Fred, came, Fred, came, Fred came out to the studio booth. Uh, uh, another guy you may know, Johnny Duncan. The, I don't know that the, name. I don't he know was that. a country singer. He, he was out in the studio trying to give me confidence and shake me and get me out of the starstruck mode. Uh, but Fred came out and said, Bobby, how are you going to ever get to be governor of Louisiana if you can't sing this song? <laughs> <laughs> it cra- it cracked me up. No, you know what I it got is? It. Can, you, can you talk the about... Next, the next yeah, take, I, I got it. <laughs> so so, so um, was it just a matter of... Uh, would, it, would it have been possible to just lay down the rhythm tracks and then have you overdub the vocals. Oh yeah. Have... That's what they normally would have done, but Fred never did it that way with, I love I'll it. Tell you, 
I was overstimulated. I was absolutely, totally like a deer in the headlights. I did. To, to complicate matters, in those days in Nashville, the console, you get this, the console was on one side. There was another glass window over on the other side where tourists came in and sat in a little room and watched the stars record. Oh, cow. Okay. Wait, they had to pay. They did they have to pay to do that, or was that? Tourist? No, they brought them in on the tour on the tour buses from outside. They stopped so the unreal, bus and bring them in off the bus, and <laughs> they, they, it was part of their package. They'd see them in the studio. In the day oh, I did. It's fantastic. And then go to the Opry at night. And yeah, but so it's, I mean, you pay, yeah, you know, Colonel Tom was fit right in right there. I'll tell you, it just added to the <clears throat> to the overstimulation for Bridger yeah. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put it this way. In the next three years, I went to Nashville probably five. When I was on a real roll, I went five times a year for the next three years. And I would stay for sometimes three weeks at a time. And during that three weeks, Fred would probably have 15 sessions a week that he was playing. And I would go from session to session with him doing these head sessions that you're so reverently describing and I so genuflect to. <laughs> I love this, man. No, you're really hitting the sweet spot right now. I just I want you to talk. This is the I don't I don't really care that it took you 25 takes. Why? Okay. Even though it, it worked out the way it did. Why did why was Fred unscrupulous about having everybody hit at the same time? He knew that I, I have to set modesty aside to describe this to yeah. you. Fred knew that I had a voice that was capable of going to the real big time, big, big, big time. And he, for example, he said after that first session, he said, the next session, we're going to do strings. <laughs> and he said, furthermore, you're going to sing with the strings. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that uh, is so. In, wait, so he's talking about a, a not, the next record. You would do strings. Yes. And I, he's going to throw me in the water and I'm going to drown or I'm going to swim. <laughs> how are you going to be mayor? How are you going to be governor of Louisiana, man? That was the way Fred did things. That but as far as like the visceral, like, I just would love you to talk. I don't care about your session per se, but just the idea of that aesthetic. Of that aesthetic was yeah. so, I was so hooked on that aesthetic. I cannot tell you. I'll tell you, I, I can tell you another story Go ahead. about that. Uh, and I can give you the. Uh, the background and more background on Fred and that little triumphant that he had with Nashville. You know the name Bob Montgomery, I'm sure. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know the name Kelso Hurston? I don't know that name. Kelso was the head of Capitol Records in Nashville for a long time. He was a star maker for a lot of big country names during the Sonny James and all those kind of people. Sure. Uh, in that era, or 60s through the early 70s. 
he was a great rhythm guitar player. He made his name writing a lot of hit Brenda Brenda Lee hits. Hmm. Okay. He was a session great rhythm session player and a great friend of Fred's. Kelso and Bob and Fred had a secret partnership. Bob was the head of Liberty Records in Nashville. Um, Kelso was the head of Capitol. And at, for a time, brief period, Fred was the head of ABC Paramount. And what they would do is they would take a young artist like a young Bobby Bridger and work him like through the minor leagues up to the majors. And hence, I went to Monument first. Yeah, I love it. Dude, this is so classic. So that's sort of the single A level. That's a minor league level. That's right. right. And Fred Foster, Fred Foster had an ear for young talent. He, he, he had resurrected Roy Orbison. He had discovered Christopherson, uh, uh, Chris Gantry, uh, Dolly Parton, uh, all, all kinds of people. And so he placed me with Monument very lovingly, Fred did. Mm. Fred knew he had to look out for me because his mother, I was his, his mother had talked me into signing me. You know? Well, this is so, this is so, this is so far beyond, but it's so true. I mean, she only saw you. So you would play on this, this uh, talent show quite often, or she saw you that one time. No, she saw me the, on the reg, on the television show. I was a regular, like, like on uh, this was like the Andy Williams show of Monroe, Louisiana. I just it was a love little it. So talk, she's, little talk yeah. show gardening. They talk you know, they have a gardener, a woman that did makeup, a barber, a whatever that came in and play. And I would do a song in between the interviews that they did with everybody who had something going in Monroe or West Monroe. Well, Fred, but I mean, Fred's mom, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. She obviously yes. knew exactly what oh, she was hearing. Oh, yeah. she was a. Dina always has reminded me of Tilly Carter, hmm. Dina, Fred's daughter. They even look, she even looks like Tilly. Uh, that's beautiful, man. So, so anyway, uh, I mean, so, so, so. I just anyway, was talking- I saw those sessions. I saw those sessions with the cream of the crop. Fred was working with the best in the business. Let's just break it down. Nashville. Is it David, David Briggs, Norbert Putnam? Those All guys? those guys, uh, yeah. even prior to them, Ray Eddington, uh, Junior Husky, Bob Moore. Uh, oh, Bob man. Moore has played on more sessions literally than anybody ever in the recording business. Was he playing upright? What was Bob Moore playing? He played, he played upright, uh, electric, anything you wanted to play. Oh my God. Dude. So he was, was, <laughs> you would say that he was like the equivalent of, um, I'm trying to think of a good guy. Uh, I, Hal Blaine, Hal Blaine or Joe Yeah, like Osborne that time period. Yeah, I did. No, I did. I did because the guy, yeah. Uh, same kind of generation. Really, that yeah, that yeah, original yeah. original wrecking crew but, was, but yeah. preceded preceded Joe in Nashville because he was back there with Harold Bradley and uh, what's the other Bradley brother and Ferlin Husky and Brenda Lee and uh, uh, Chet Atkins A Team the original A Team in Nashville was wait wait, wait was, uh, what, was, uh, was was Wayne Kramer. was Wayne Wayne Moss in there. Wayne Wayne of course came in through uh, Barefoot Jerry, 
and he was immortal after uh, <laughs> right, Pretty right. Woman. After right, Pretty Woman. Right, right, and then and then Lloyd Green as well, right? Yeah, yeah. B- both those guys came in through that, and and uh, Kenny Buttry as well. And, and what about uh, what about that cat, uh, Weldon Myrick? Oh yeah, yeah, he's a steel player. All steel, of, yeah. Uh, all those guys were working with Fred sometimes four sessions a day. That so, and that yeah, was the uh, original, you know. the original Wrecking Crew of Nashville. Yes, that's unbelievable. Right. The, the Nash- unbelievable. The, they were the Nashville Cats, and I was <laughs> when I was privy to go. They teased me and teased Fred that Fred was the only one of them who had a roadie when I was in town because I was I would unload load and unload the guitars out of the back of the Cadillac. And you were just and, fine with that. Yeah, I love it. Oh, I just I was a I was a pig in shit, man. <laughs> and watching those sessions and and what I was going to tell you yeah. to 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 perfectly tell you that story was one Sunday night I was in Nashville and Bob Montgomery shows up and uh, uh uh, he's he's just beaming from ear to ear. He's so proud of himself. He does it, and he's jumping up and down and dancing and coming in. I've got a hit. We're gonna be so rich. <laughs> put it on, put it on. So Fred Fred gets the real drill, and uh, uh, Bob plays the demo of Honey. It wow. said, we're, we're cutting it tomorrow. You're on the date with Goldsboro. Goldsboro comes in. I think they took, I think they took three takes. And I don't remember who was on the date, but everybody there just went, oh, man, we're going to hear this on the radio before we get to the car. You know? Incredible. <laughs> and uh, Incredible. That, was, that was where Bob launched big time. I mean, huge, big time. That's where he became big wig at Columbia. Uh, 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 what's the big pump publishing company? Pearly Cutman and Putman and all of them. Uh, oh, Tree. He uh, oh, yeah, uh, tree, uh, was tree Music. Big, big Tree, Big Tree Records or something? Uh, no, no, Tree yeah. Music. Tree, tree yeah. Music, Tree Music. Yeah, they were huge off of Greengrass at home and... Uh, Elusive Dreams, all those Curly Putman hits, just one after another. Uh, just they were they were the gorilla, eight hundred pound gorilla in Nashville for years. And Bob ended up running that company and was the head of A and R at Columbia in Nashville. When when but you Bob, yeah when you at that point go right ahead, yeah. after that right after that, Fred said to Bob, "We got one more shot with Monument." Uh, uh, get Bobby a song and Bob had me over I'd already cut some of Bob's songs on my first recording session that same uh, session I had so much trouble with before we ended I, I became a, a one to five hit wonder at that point after 25 <laughs> I know I, once I learned what was going on and relaxed I right right you settled in yeah totally yeah yeah, but uh, I cut a, a Bob Montgomery song called Three Squares and a Place to Lay Your Head." But Bob, about about four or five days after Honey, Bob taught me a song of his called "Over You," and of course he had written "Misty Blue" as well, hmm. which was a smash. And uh, this was very almost in that same genre. And man, I thought this was a smash. 
And Bob Moore played bass on it and helped Fred with the arrangement in the studio. And uh, I think Pig played piano. Uh, I can't remember who else was on that day. Maybe. Uh, I think Fred played guitar on that record. Uh, anyway, oh, I loved that song. It was a great song. But the B-side was a song that Chris Gantry, who was had just written, uh, had he was at the time had a smash with Dreams of the Everyday Housewife. Wow. And I had a hold on a song that he had written because we were both on Monument and I knew his work and I admired his, he had a song called Sundown Mary that would, I just really admired, but I was goo-goo over a song he had written called uh, Net of Fireflies. And we cut that song for the B-side of Over You. And Fred made me do it live with a 16-piece orchestra. And, uh, and that was more again. But that all happened right in the same period. And at that point, I was, you know, I was ready for the majors. Uh, he had already, he would do things. He came back from, you know, the drum explosion on uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water and on the yes. boxer. Yes. <laughs> the the people that get credit for that are uh, Artie and Hal Blaine with the drum. But I know, I would bet, I would bet a, a <laughs> I'd, I'd bet a, a lot that Fred Carter was the brains behind that drum explosion in on the on that record. And the only because, and the only the only reason we can't confirm that is because Fred passed away before we were able to really acknowledge figure that out. Yeah, but yeah. Fred had the only EMT plates, German EMT echo plates in Nashville at the time got it fred was fred had a marble marble echo chamber that he had built he was obsessed with echo oh my god this man is out of, hold he, on i just want to stop want to stop you right there the the 16 the um the net of fireflies with the string court string orchestra mm -hmm. that was 68 16 piece that? orchestra that Don Tweedy conducted, and this was 68, 1968. And you were still sort of in the I minor. was still on Monument. I was on Monument, Monument but, right, but, but you Fred, were starting. Fred, yeah. Fred had bought Nugget and was just about to move me to Nugget. And uh, Fred Foster had wanted me to sign with Monument again, but he wanted to produce me and cut Fred out of the deal. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going with the I'm I'm gonna dance with the guy that brung me. You know? Yeah, you break exactly, and, uh, dude. And exactly, uh, he had bought Nugget, and that's where he had the EMT plates, and that's when Simon and Garfunkel were hot on him. With that's when they were recording "Bridge Over Troubled Water." It was '68, '69, and there, and he came back from one of those sessions, and I'm gonna tell you more about him. He said, "Have you ever noticed, Bobby?" We fished out at Center Hill Reservoir a lot all night out there a lot. I know, I do. That's where dude, all those cats would go out there. Man. Yeah, they'd go yeah. out and fish there late all night. Sure. And he says, uh, uh, have you ever noticed that echo resonates more over water than it than not 
than it when it's not near water. And I went, no, I never paid any attention to that in my life. Well, when I went back to Nashville, he had concocted a little trough of water, like you would have a chicken feeder and a and a chicken coop. Sure, yeah. With metal in a wood in a wooden basin that he had tacked down, and this thing was about oh, about six to eight feet long. And he took it to the studio and had me sing while he and Jess Yarian, his engineer, recorded me doing a demo, singing at the with a mic at one end of the trough and me at the other end of the trough. You have to be kidding me. How he got any echo out of that, I'll never know. I never heard the playback. He and Art Garfunkel kind of ripped the blanket over one thing at one point. When he Fred showed Artie that marble echo room, and I think Fred told me that Mar Fred said, "Well, if it doesn't work, at least they can bury you in it, Fred." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't. I, Fred was Fred was very serious about echo, and I just would bet that that explosion came from him. They may have done it. They may have put Artie may have told Hal Blaine to go get in the elevator shaft but i'll bet it was fred that suggested right the, the seed was planted by fred carter it was fred who threw it into the echo chamber the way they did that was a, a bass drum on the floor boom and then they this, then they did a they double tracked it so they had a, 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 a one a second drum out of sync boom boom the second drum hit the second drum they threw into an echo chamber and just immersed it solid and, and so it created an explosion. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. You yeah. see. That's so, that, by the way, I just want to be clear, was that done in New York or Los Angeles? I don't know how they did that later. Okay. I think they did it in New York because Fred was still there. Fred was recorded with them in New York. Sure. I don't think Fred recorded with them in Los Angeles. So I would bet that uh, I'm pretty sure that was done in New York. And see, so, I didn't meet I didn't meet them until the next, probably about six months later, maybe close to closer to a year later. They both came to Nashville to give Fred a, a gold record, and I went out to the airport with Fred and Harlan Howard and Chet Atkins. Uh, to in a in Fred's Cadillac to meet Paul and Peggy Harper, his first wife. Wow! And and so that after that, I Fred had always said he he was training me to produce my own records. I pushed Paul about how he got what he wanted and he said he paid the price and that meant mixing until you uh, Artie and Roy Halley convinced was were convinced that he had turned Mrs. Robinson into a minor religion he mixed it so many times <laughs> hold on I just want to be clear <clears throat> um, you, you, you came with the guy who brought you there uh, mm -hmm. on, on Nugget 
what was what was the first project you did on Nugget? One of the first projects I did was he had bought with Nugget a wealth of bluegrass masters. Wow! Because Lonzo and Oscar owned the studio and the and all the maskers they were famous kind of a second tier bluegrass i love it this is sick and he fred pulled one of those old albums they made out and said uh you sing in that tenor key let's see what happens and we pulled out uh the masters put them on the turn (laughs) put them on the recording machines and started recording uh on another track singing the songs over again bluegrass with me singing and seeing what would what, do you remember what what's the name of that what's the name of the album i have i have no i can, couldn't possibly so it recall. was never it was never released no he yes. was just playing we did that often i want to often go back for we, one second because i mean th- this is where the rubber meets the road like <clears throat> when i interviewed carl himmel you know, legend, uh, you know, he was talking about playing with Quasi Gardner and they'd be playing jazz. And like, I think that, can you just talk about Bob Moore, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> Chet Atkins, those guys could all play Fred Carter. Could they, those guys play jazz? Well, you know, the, uh, I'm talking like I, I'm Chet, not. Chet, a... Chet had that. Chet had that classic saying that when someone asked him, "Did he read music?" and he said, "Yeah, but not enough to mess up my playing." <laughs> That's the greatest line in the world, dude. So what? So I mean, but what I'm talking about is like <laughs> I'm not saying that Dizzy Gillespie was coming down to Nashville to jam, play bebop with no. these guys. But no. could they? Could they play bebop? They could play anything. Uh, Fred used to amaze me, and Dina will verify this. Yes. If you ever talk with her. I got to talk Or with Ronnie her, or any of his kids. Uh, he would come home from working four sessions in a day and wind down by watching cartoons on kidney cartoons, Looney Tunes. Yeah. And playing along with the score. Uh, to those zany cartoons on a, a gut string guitar. Wow. And I don't know if you've ever tried to follow one of those damn things, but. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the, 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 the major New York, the major studio cats the from the original Wrecking Crew in <laughs> Los Angeles, Emil Richards, he said the hardest music to play was that cartoon music. So I, 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 I understand. Well, he would. Fred would wind down with that, so he'll <laughs> tell you more about what's going on. He was uh, winding down, dude. And I was privy to all those sessions. I will never get over it. I will never reach a creative juncture again like that. I love it. I freaking love, it. dude. You know what? You're blessed. That I, I've worked, I've worked in, I've worked with the cream of the crop from Broadway, Dale Wasserman, that wrote *Man of La Mancha*, with the, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. I've worked intensely with him in theater productions, creatively. I've worked with 
uh, Max Evans, who was with Sam Peckinpah when he died, I, I, on and on and on. I never met anyone as creatively tuned in as Fred and many of those other studio musicians in Nashville during those days. And I'm sure the same thing is true in Nashville. I cut in Nashville with the Wrecking Crew, with Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne uh, when I was on RCA. Uh, I saw all of those guys in the studio. I'm sure there are other people who worked with the same people too, but I will never get over doing head sessions with those studio musicians they were the smartest cats i want to be very clear though let's let's go a little bit deeper on this because i think going back to the chet atkins line all these cats on top of just being stone geniuses they were all ear trained musicians did any of them really read music glenn campbell never read music i mean i mean uh chet atkins never read music no, I think he he may have never read music. I don't. Oh, know. he said he said I, not enough to screw up my playing. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah. He's he was joking with you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Chet was a big cut up like that, and you never knew. Well, let me go ahead and describe. I'm yeah. sure Fred would love for me to tell you this please, story. And please, I'm going to run out of voice. <laughs> no, we, but, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do a couple different installments. This is just set good. More. I don't. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm loving talking. You now we're cooking story, away, dude. You're, you're making my day, man. You're making my you're day. The, well, you're making my day because you're the only cat that I know who knows what I've been talking about. Well, for the last honestly, man, like years. it's just the cats have. Listen, I I'm not a big reader. It's you guys who have filled me with all of this wisdom and knowledge. So it's all my hats off to you guys. Man. Well, I've been trying to express this to people. Is, there is a thing going on in North Louisiana right now called the North Louisiana Music Trail. Right. Fred had the first highway marker honoring him. It was because an old art student of mine was going around out of his civic duty and love of people and cleaning up historical markers on the side of the road and recoloring them and all sorts of stuff. I love this. And when he, when he told me he was doing that, I said, someone should do something like that for the musicians that have come out of that part of the world. And he said, that's a great idea. And he called me back in about six months and said, Fred's going to be the first one and you're going to be the seventh one. <laughs> they did Jimmy Davis. They did Webb Pierce. They did Tony Joe White. Oh, they did God. Ivory Joe Hunter, oh. who wrote, wrote Since I Met Your Baby. They found the guy that wrote uh, Louis Louis is a black guy from North Louisiana. The kids that made it popular were from, were from Seattle, but the pe- pe- guy that wrote it was a black guy from North Louisiana. They, Let me ask you a question. I want to just say this is really important. How, how, as best you can, how did that, and the same, there are these, how did a certain selection of seekers and geniuses wind up in that area? Was it, does this go way back in the history of our country? I don't, it's, I think it's also part of the fact that that's an area known for the blues. Absolutely. 
I mean, it is the blues has branded and marketed that brand uh, very thoroughly. You know, it's funny though. Is I just want to stop you. It's funny because at the pop level, for a forty-three-year-old like myself and younger, it's uh, the Mississippi Delta blues. You never hear about Northern Louisiana. It's always Mississippi, and that. But it's it's even more than it's Northern Louisiana. Well, now you see what this Louisiana. North Louisiana Music Trail is trying to hook up with the Mississippi Blues Trail and also the the Arkansas Rockabilly Trail, which is now coming together. So what this what what we're hitting around but not hitting the nail on the head is that there was a lot more going on there than just blues. That rockabilly thing that happened there with Elvis and with the Hawks and with everybody else in that Conway and all those guys. Oh my God. Was powerful shit, man. <laughs> no, I mean, it you was, know, it, it was, and, it, and it's really not been complete, <laughs> fully documented the way it should. It has, you know, Elvis, when Elvis was playing guitar with Scotty and Bill, that's about as hip as it was ever going to get, man. <laughs> And they totally can they it. can mock Elvis all they want to, but Elvis was driving the rhythm of that shit, man. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know? dude, Otis. I mean, he was upset. Yeah, I mean, that to me is absolutely. You know, there was the, the the barnyard. They had something in which was similar to the Grand Old Opry in Arkansas. I remember talking to Louis Shelton, the great studio shark, about, and he would see Jerry Lee Lewis on the top of you know freaking, you know. Uh, hot dog stands uh you mm-hmm. know just it was just mm-hmm. it was that was in arkansas ronnie obviously uh that's still i mean rest in peace ronnie hawkins i mean it's still remarkable to me that he took fred carter jr doc Thomas, and those guys to canada you know it's really i mean mm-hmm. he was on this one label roulette he had no he signed his life away and then he wound up living up there the rest of his life but i mean and then for fred's mom well, I mean, the whole thing is just, it almost sounds, it just it sounds like a dream, really. It's, it, it, it is to me, I know at this point, almost, but, you know, the story is that, that Conway told Ronnie to go to Canada because Rockabilly was fading out and that they still loved it up in Canada and he could still get a few shekels up there if they put I wait. I before and, we wrap, yeah, go ahead, continue, please. But now let me let, let me punctuate this with something that that as a folklorist, uh, because I've done a lot of wood shows. Oh, I know. I, I understand. Yeah, that sheds light on this. Most of those guys in Nashville, in, when I hit town, Bob Montgomery, for example, Bob grew up. He was part of a group called Buddy and Bob. That was Buddy Holly and Bob Montgomery. My God. They were, were a songwriting duo in Lubbock. And then, of course, Buddy Holly hit big, and Bob rode his coattails straight to New York and uh, in the, as a writer, primarily. And uh, they all thought that Rockabilly was, even Elvis, they thought, this is, you know, this is maybe two, three records, and it's going to fade out when we driving trucks again. And so they had their eye on the industry, getting a couple of hits 
with a couple of silly little songs and then becoming an A&R guy. And hence you get a Kelso Hurston who, you know, writes five Brenda Lee hits and then he's the head of Capitol Records. Right, 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 right. Fred jumps straight out of picking and singing. He's the head of A&R at ABC Paramount. You see what I'm getting at? It was a foundational, basically, it was a much more than just a fad. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So everybody thought rockabilly was a mid, it was gonna, uh, just going to fade out as quick as your jeans, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's why I think that Ronnie took off to Canada. There's another story that I heard because they were on Roulette, which was a very famous mafia label as well and i heard that while they were playing in detroit no this is a story that i think is maybe an urban myth that they got in sideways with the mafia don in detroit because they one of the guys and no one knows who seduced the daughter of one of the mafia heads and he put a hit out on them and Ronnie went to, I can't remember who that guy was uh, that headed Roulette Records and said, save us. You know, is it the Jew, guys, Jewish, Jewish Mafia who owned Yeah, Jewish got, Mafia the, guy. The guy owned I Birdland. He, I don't remember his name, but but yeah, he absolutely. Martin uh, Levy. His last name was Levy. That's right. Something. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Morris Levy. Morris Levy. And that he said, run across the border to Toronto and give me time to call this guy off. And that's how they liked it over there and stayed. Well, no, I want to, I just want to, I want to read this because this is my, my fifth book is coming out. And one of my interviews is with mm -hmm. a guy that I'm not sure if you ever played with uh, Amos Garrett. He has the legendary. Snuff solo. Garrett, yeah. No, no, Snuff not, Garrett. not Snuff, a Amos Garrett, Amos Garrett mm -hmm. from Detroit, uh, not Snuff, mm -hmm. but he, 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 he said in this, he goes, I'm an honorary hawk. I knew mm -hmm. Ronnie Hawkins from Toronto because I grew up with Levon and the guys. My mm -hmm. favorite amalgamation of the group is Levon and the Hawks before they were the band. They were right, Ronnie's right. first all Canadian band. He had about, right. this is the, this is it. He had about four or five big hits in the States. He was mm -hmm. a hillbilly from Arkansas. When he was about 18, he signed a record deal with roulette whereby he couldn't make a dime. No matter how mm -hmm. many records he sold, he mm -hmm. was a teenager, good-looking hillbilly kid so he came up to southern ontario so it sounds to me like at the end of the day uh you know he was like because i mean those elvis and those cats were making good bread and and yeah, ronnie yeah. ronnie had signed his they kind of signed his life away so it, it worked out it worked out okay yeah it certainly did and and uh music history will never be the same but that's when fred said i'm not going to to Canada. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to Nashville. He had been doing a lot of dates with Roy Orbison, a lot of the Dream Baby, and a lot during that period. As a matter of fact, he played on so many Orbison records, they couldn't remember for a while whether it was him or Wayne that did the Pretty Woman lick. That, 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 uh, I, I, there was a lot of discussion about whether who actually played that for a while. Wow. I, I, I and I love Wayne, and I, and, but, and he, and it's very clear that he did it. But anyway, before, uh, before, before, before we wrap up set one here with with Bobby yeah. Bridger, 
um, <clears throat> I've been really, like I said, I walked, I know I just came out of left field when I sent that message to you. Um, you're not the first person I've solicited to come on my show, uh, using new media. I feel like, uh, you know, people can dog on social media, whatever you want to call it. Uh, if you mm -hmm. don't, you know, to me, it's one of the most brilliant, uh, things to ever come around. And I can only hope that over time creatives, uh, modern day Bobby Bridgers who are growing up now can start to use it to produce content, to drive consciousness and not to receive information and drown. That being mm -hmm. said, <clears throat> I've been, I found I was digging through the country section of this record store in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and I picked out merging of the minds uh, yeah, merging of our minds, right. merging of our minds, and I turned it over. I'm like, who is what is? I saw it was on RCA. I'm like, Nashville mm -hmm. cat. Look over. I'm like, Carl Himmel's playing drums. Who is Bobby Bridger? And the next thing <laughs> you know, I seek you out online, and there you are. And so I've been listening to that album, and it's great because all the lyrics are included. And I just kind of wanted you to talk about this one song, "Fomping Around." And you talk about bumping <laughs> around. I'm really enjoying oh. that because it's like a, the same same vibe. Even though I know, uh, you know, same vibe is like a, you know, some of the there's a, a Delbert McClinton Glenn Clark album that's ridiculous from the same time period. There's a Bobby Charles from that time period. It's the same uh -huh. kind of vibe on. So fomping around, take us through it, baby. Well, it's so funny you bring that up after all this talk about Studio Cats because. Yep. Uh, Fred, uh, as I said, Fred had Nugget, uh, Nugget Studios and Nugget Label and all that. And I was due for a demo session. And I told Fred I did not want to work with all the regular cats because <laughs> right. th this, this thing uh, th had become very, uh, it had become very, uh, formulaic formulated and I, I said surely there are a bunch of kids in town like me my age you know right right and, and he said you know that makes a whole lot of sense let's see what I can do when you get to town and so uh he got Carl and a bunch of the kids from Mother Earth that were playing with Mother Earth at the Tracy time. Nelson unbelievable Tracy Nelson. holy that's, cow that's where that's Carl and uh, Andy uh, McMahon and uh, Powell St. John, all those guys came out for the session that day. All those were first takes. Dude, that was. is so freaking awesome. So he basically took your, he took what you wanted. He found these younger, because I, there's a lot of cats on there. I don't, the names don't necessarily jump off the table. When I saw Himmel, and mm -hmm. then, and then of course, Fred Carter in legendary fashion playing i think congas on on it as well yes. i mean, it, it, yes. I mean it's just, it just was like i'm like this is a jake feinberg in the pocket album and i was it, this is why it's so classic that we not only do we connect but this has been completely transcendent and really uh beautiful interview so i i can now go down and really dive in even deeper i'm just saying that that is a golden that's a gold well, that's gold right there well i'll set the stage for you with uh bumping around first of all it was a song that was written i was emptying my trash one day <laughs> and i was out dumping the trash and there was a little kid playing around by himself as kids will do he's about seven or eight years old singing and dancing and skipping 
you know, just happy with himself. Having a ball, yeah. And I said, what are you doing out here at the trash cans? And he said, I'm just stomping around. <laughs> I think he was trying to say stomping around because he was jumping up and down like in a mud puddle. And he was stomping. I thought, what a great word. Oh, my stomping around, baby. I and I ran back in. And I, I wrote that song in about 10 minutes. And I ran back in. And I never thought anything of it until it was time to demo. And Fred had also... I had told Fred I didn't want any name players on on this uh, because I said if we get anything that works, I'll just pay a master's fee on the record and we'll put and I'll we'll put a record out. Right. So he calls me the in the day before the and I told oh and I told him I did not want him to play on the record, and he was kind of chagrined and. Took a back, it took a back step, kind of pause. Yeah, you weren't in the minor leagues anymore, though. You were calling the nope. shots. Yeah, and, and he and he took a look at me and uh, 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 and he said, "All right," he said, "I'll keep the coffee pot pot." <laughs> and so he he knew what was going on, that I was going to go after something different. He'd been pushing on me with stuff like the water trough and like that forever. And uh, so right before the session, he called me and he said, Pete Drake is here. He's just come back from England. He's been working with George Harrison on this monster three album, right. three disc album thing. He said, he's available. Do you want me to book him? And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. And I said, God, let's book him. Right. <laughs> so we booked Pete Drake. And Pete comes in. And you'll notice he's pretty predominant on that with that steel slide. Ah, everywhere. On, on that yeah. song, you know? Everywhere. And we get in the studio. And all these kids, Carl and all of them included, were totally freaked out because they knew he'd been playing with George Harrison you know? <laughs> and so they were freaked and uh, Pete after about three takes on one of the songs that didn't make that album as a matter of fact uh, he says pulls me aside and says look uh, next run on this I'm going to hit a clam and you're going to call for I'm going to call for a cigarette break and uh, you're going to do, you're going to take the break. And I said, okay, <laughs> Mr. Drake. <laughs> so he hit his clam and I said, okay, let's take a break. And we, the two of us go outside and smoke a cigarette together, Pete and I. We come back in and everybody's looking at both of us like totally different. He said, he told me before we went back in, he says, that's going to calm everybody down. They're going to see I can hit the clam just like they can. I love it. This is so and classic. He said, this is going to let all of all those boys ease up in there. And that session, then that was the first cut that we, the song that I pulled out next. And we did a first take and boom, it was in the can. Pop it around. And Pop it around was the first take. I went. Yeah, and I went. Oh, in, I love, and, so you're, you, he he settled everybody down, hitting the clam, 
Right. Everybody, and everybody went, was relaxed. You came back in, knocked out that song right away. I went out to the office and said to Fred, hey, uh, I'm over this now. Can you come in and play with us? <laughs> and that started the one take, one cut, boom, boom, boom. We just, we worked. Dude, so, 12, so, you know, it was hours. like, it was like, yo, you were like, let me bring in some unsung cats. And then, mm-hmm. you know, once it was all said and done, the masters helped you get over the finish Pete, line. That, Pete, that's Pete and, Pete and Fred came in and, and just, we, we brought the thing home. And then we couldn't sell it for, it took me a year and a half to sell it. And uh, nobody wanted it. And then Fred finally told me to, he said, can you pay for a 16-track dub? I said, yeah. And I spent the last of the money I had in any kind of budget with it for Fred to make a 16-track a dub. And he sent it to Roy Halley out in San Francisco, Simon Garfunkel's engineer guy, co-producer. Sure. And he mixed it. And that's the the mix. That that's RCA the mix that bought. came out on RCA. I, 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 whatever. No, that, no. That, no. Uh, the RCA that, bought that mix. And the first thing they wanted to do was remix the fucking oh, record. Oh, come on. I Taking said, all the life uh, out of it, man. I said, are you fucking kidding me yeah, that's like all ego stuff man that's like ego Roy, stuff man. they said you just signed a contract that everything has to be done in an RCA studio we have to remix this with our engineers I went oh god are you you kidding you're kidding me so I had to fly out to LA for oh probably six months on and off to remix the record before it came out and Fred was furious over it because I had to sign my publishing to E.H. Morris to get the record deal. And I went to tell him in person that I had signed. He was thinking I was going to re-sign with him. And I went to tell him eye to eye that I had signed with E.H. Morris. And he got on the phone immediately and called the head of E.H. Morris and called him a big son of a bitch. Well, but here's the thing. I, I, first of all, kudos to you for being straight up with Fred, obviously, but it, it no one was, it, you couldn't, you couldn't find anybody to take the record for two years. I'm not sure what you were supposed to do. No, I, I, it was going to die and my career exactly. was going to die. Right. So I had to do it. And it took the reason I made the record heal in the wisdom Hmm. which is the most spiritual record I've ever made. And you should listen to that. Well, I need uh, to get my hands on that. I don't know how to get my hands. I've done the, the you, first go to my record. YouTube. Go to, go to my YouTube channel. Okay. Okay. And I got to dig into that. Because I'm really, you know what it is? The, regardless of how much, how many freaking remixes were done on the Minds record, uh, it just sounds like you're having fun. And during that, that's it. I mean, it was fun. I mean, that. and the thing is this, I'll just leave you with this, Bobby Bridger, we wrap up set one. As you enter this new year, keep in mind, as you always do, that happiness is our divine right. Amen. So it is all about having a ball. And yeah. everything else <laughs> after that is secondary, man. So I just want to tell you, <laughs> thank you for blowing my mind. I will get this up later tonight. And we'll move on and do set two down the road real soon. 
Call me as soon as you're ready, man. You're the you're the dude who knows what I'm talking about. Hey, man, I'm just trying. I'm just. I'm merely a conduit for this stuff. I I do not. I'm not responsible for anything other than being a vessel for the information. So, Mazel Tov, man. Hey, mazel Tov. <laughs> Be cool, Bobby. I'll talk to you soon. I I I, I got to tell you about Leonard Marks in the next talk. Oh no, we're we're, we're we got more to okay. do. Don't you worry. Okay. Okay, my All right, man. Be bye cool, bye. man. Later. You too. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye.